The following Dharma talk was given by Ron Hogan Green. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon to everyone here and those at home. This is case number 45 in the Mumon Khan. Who is the other? Fayan said, Shakyamuni and Maitreya are servants of another. Tell me, who is that other? Maitreya is the Buddha of the next Kalpa, the, the coming Buddha. The commentary of Mumon. If you see this other and distinguish them clearly, then it is like encountering your parent at the crossroads. You will not need to ask somebody whether or not you're right. Mumon's verse. Don't draw another's bow. Don't ride another's horse. Don't discuss another's fault. Don't inquire into another's affairs. So this is a very um, short, concise koan, and uh, invites you to uh, be careful because it's short and concise. As I was considering what to talk about, and also thinking about uh, Sancho and uh, his long, careful, persistent journey here, this koan struck me as one that was very appropriate to describe his, his life and his practice here. His persistence, his care and in investing in the question, who is the other? Who is outside us? So who is that other? This is a direct question. It puts us, puts right before us the fundamental challenge of being wholly responsible for our life. It's ours, no one else's. The question asks us to sit down and directly inquire, who am I? The implication of inquiring formally in our zazen, of holding this question open as part of our consciousness as we go about our business, is present in this koan and present in our zazen. And it's present in whatever subliminal manner we can keep this question alive and without being. And when we do, when we keep an inquiry such as this alive, it brings an energy and an aliveness to our very life. It creates a spark in us. And in a sense, we see everything a little bit different. We see it through this question. It's an intensely personal question. So that every relationship, everything we encounter, every thought we have can be considered, not with any false intensity, but with care, 
Who am I? Who is the other? It brings an awareness to how we're, to what we're engaged in, in this moment, in this time and place, no matter where we are. And that, in some unknowable, mysterious way, profoundly informs us and helps us. We begin to trust a sense of being true to ourselves. That's such a question. It's so sharp and so to the point that it cuts through all the bullshit that we are so accustomed to raising before us. We may not think of it that way, but it may be that way. This is, at base, no different than questioning Mu, or the sound of one hand, or sing with a breath of shikantaza. It is sitting zazen. This is no different than sitting with a fundamental life challenge that we just cannot see our way into. Each may have a slightly different energy, each way of inquiring, of sitting, may have a slightly different energy. But no matter what the practice is, at base, there's an inquiry. What drives the question at bottom, it is a desire to live out of who we truly are. The question may or may not be consciously articulated for us, but it is this question in some form that brings us to practice, some dissatisfaction, some dis-ease with our sense of being. And our quick, accustomed ideas about ourselves. When we put that aside, if the energy in our questioning is alive and well, then no matter how or what we practice, it comes forth, this kind of inquiry. And if it does, if there is no inquiry into our zazen, then we can do zazen and we can practice. But it's, it's as if our feet are not firmly planted on the ground. And we can't really, in a deep way, support ourselves when we may need it the most. We may find ourselves completely adrift and lost. When did you become a you, who you are? that you may have framed so closely. How have we adjusted our sense of ourself to meet our suffering requirements? Move over here, move over there, think this, think that. Do this habitually, do that. Form relationships in this way, form relationships in that way. When did we become this person who so adroitly shifts according to our pain? 
I was reminded of this in a very graphic way. Um, when someone sent me a picture taken in 1978, and I remember when the picture was taken, it was in Golden, Colorado. Uh, A.O. and I and our one-year-old son had just moved there. Um, we were very poor. I was just starting my medical practice. We had $600 in the bank and a Volkswagen and a one-year-old child. And um, my son and myself were sitting on a couch. And I remember that couch. It was like, it seemed like 10 feet long. It was chocolate brown. And it was one of these perfect couches to take a nap on in because you could lie down and be comfortable. And I thought to myself, who is that person in the picture? I recognized myself. I had a beard then, by the way. But I barely identify with that person in the picture, except as a distant memory. I can relate that way. And I know that memory is not completely trustworthy. It's not a complete picture of the being I was then, because I'm not the being I was then. And I asked myself, that being in that picture, how did I shape my life? What was important to me? And I can name what was important to me. Starting my practice, playing tennis, my one-year-old child, my marriage, the very inkling start, barely, of Zen practice. Ron, what are you doing in that room being so quiet? Anyway, um, what were my plans? What were my desires? How did I shape my thoughts about my life? Where did I put my energies? I've named some of them. What was important to me? And most importantly, what was the consequences of those, of the answers to those questions? The consequences that I supplied in living those questions, living my life. And there's this tiny one-year-old child who now, like me, is very different in appearance and in personality, in his place in life and his sense of himself. And here, 43-odd years later, what do these same questions mean to me now? Because they exist as long as I exist. Are these same questions alive for me? What is my life about? What am I doing? What's important to me? How am I spending my time? Do we make bargains with ourselves so we can be safe in fear? Perhaps this is an attractive bargain. We figure out ourselves and certainly others, and nail this to a beam that we can prop up our life with. 
I knew very clearly what was important to me at that time. And I think I know what's important to me now, at this time. Is there safety, permanence in this? Is there a relative intelligence to asking these questions and being open to them that is usable? And at the same time, when I investigate these questions, I realize it's a very small box that we can put ourselves in. And when the box can no longer hold our life as it is, real difficulties and pain arises. Estrangement arises from ourself. We have an internal conflict that we may not be aware of until we're forced to address. You know, cognitive dissonance is the term. And I've seen it a lot in my life and other lives. I've seen it here. It challenges us to acknowledge our questions, to acknowledge our fear of addressing our questions. It challenges us to, to you know, free the questions, let them fly, let them be. It challenges us to acknowledge what I do, what I think, what I say. And I'm not too happy about some of those things that come up in those circumstances. I'd rather not look at them. So how do we go beyond? How do we go and keep the question of who is the other open? There are other options to keeping the question open. I mean, just look around. We can buy into what we give and receive socially, kind of as a way of establishing ourselves. We can live in the labels, our labels and other labels of ourself. Labels are important. Whether or not we choose to hold them up as me being special or push me down as me being special. Either way, we can label ourselves, And the familiarity and comfort of those labels serve us. They keep the bears away. And even in our noticing how limited we are in this context, we still draw on that. The costume, the labels, we are so rewarded or judged by. When we stop and think about this, what is their value? When all is said and done, do they really protect us from uncertainty? Do they really offer us control? Sure, temporarily. Does it, do the labels have a depth for our life, a real depth? Does it matter to us 
in the Dharma experience of a lifetime. I'm just thinking of all the customs, uniforms, and different clothing I've worn. I remember working, uh, delivering newspapers. And I had my bike and the big bag with the newspapers in it. I remember working as a pharmacy student with the short white jacket, not the long one, because that meant you were important, but the short one. And then the long one when I became a pharmacist. I remember working as a medical student, back to the short one. Then in residency, a little longer. And then in private practice, tie and official looking. And except in Colorado where you wore your running shoes and shorts to treat your patients sometimes. And how about here? Gray robes, white robes, black robes, no robes, roxes, special positions. Social labels have utility, important utility, but it's very provisional. I remember once Shugen Roshi and Doksan asked me a, a question relating to a koan and asked me to come forth with it. And he said, in relation to himself, forget the robe, forget what I'm wearing, forget the title. These weren't his exact words. The human being. And he asked, the que- asked me to answer the question in relation to the life, the human being, because that's what we're working with. And again, we need our provisional places, robes, positions. I noted just coming out of who I am and my own personality that whatever robe I wore in the course of my life, I'm using the word robe in a larger sense, I was completely devoted to, even if I didn't like the position, that somehow that came through to me, the importance of that, to be that, to identify with that, and yet to understand that it's provisional. It is provisional. When I die and I'm cremated, probably, I don't know for sure, I'll be in these robes or some robe in this rock suit or some rock suit, but I can't take it with me. As my body burns, I can't take it with me. It too will burn. It will not often be protection from that burning. We don't have to take up these difficult questions. It's safe being defined by others. And it's an easy buy-in. And the safety, and that safety allows for our feelings, allows for an emotional margin. If the feelings fit within the parameters 
of where we emotionally place ourselves, then it meets our criteria for being safe. So some feelings, great. You know, you can name your feelings. You know, in the book of feelings, it says we're allowed to have. And on the other page, there's the book. And that same book is the feelings we're not allowed to have. Of course, Sazen teaches us something about thoughts and feelings. But still, we dodge them. But these bargains with ourselves are important and can open us up and bring many satisfactory things to our life. Promote some measure of security, predictability, order. But if all of our questions end with these margins, our life is within these margins. Is that okay for you to have that circumscribed life? We need a balance of safety, predictability, comfort. But we don't want to be in jail. So is it okay? Is it enough for your life? It may be. That's fine. It may not be. That's fine. It may be for a while just fine. And then maybe it won't. Another way that I, to ask these questions, another way that I ask myself these questions, are are you settled in your being so that your life and death can be lived in a holy way? When I wrote this, when I thought this and I wrote it, what came out was H-O-L-Y. You know, I would have expect, looked at it and I would have expected holy, you know, Zen, holy, all one, da 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 da. That's not what came out. Holy. To me, that means the wisdom that does not exclude the one next to you, the one far from you, the one you'll never know. Fayan, the master asking these questions. It's the great-great-great-grandfather, I think I missed a great, in the Dharma of Master Mumon, who compiled the Mumon Khan, from which this koan was drawn. Who am I? Or who is the one who hears? Or Mu? They're very traditional koans. Different lineages use them. We tend to use the Mu Koan in this, in this lineage. All of them can incite an investigation, a deep inquiry into your being. And that inquiry comes and goes to the bottom of your being. Anything between the inquiry and the bottom of who you are obstructs it. You can't make up an answer here. It's got to be through and through. Yet each person works with their essential questions that brought them to practice in their own way. For each person, it's different. It has a different energy, a different feel. Sitting with your breath is the same inquiry 
although it may not be understood that way, at least initially. But we're studying through direct awareness, directly, with nothing between us and the awareness that we have at the moment. Where does the breath arise from? Where does it go when it departs? Have it tried to see where the next breath is coming from before it's there? Have you ever tried to see where the breath goes when it's gone? How about a thought? Where does that come from? An emotion. These are our definitions of ourself I'm talking about. Any thought about this is already too late. Already swung and missed at the fastball that the catch is thrown back to the pitcher, to use a sports knowledge. I can't help it, I'm sorry. <laughs> the open awareness of Shikantaza rests on a fundamental inquiry into our being. Shikantaza depends on the faith of your inherent Buddha nature. And you sit with this in that faith. Yet that faith has to be confirmed. Faith is one thing, confirmation is another. And Dogen points that out very clearly. You have to realize that faith as your own being without any inquiry into our Buddha nature, without some undefinable soup of a deep determination and a deep questioning and a deep faith, without that present, then we're just sitting in the worst sense of just sitting. We're just hanging out. For some people, it's a big step to go from just sitting, living in the thoughts, just like we spend our whole life living in our thoughts, creating difficulties for ourselves. But there's so much to do, and there will always be so much to do. <laughs> Daito Roshi. In the days when I was at Dharma Communication, people would say, there's so much to do. And he would say, there will never be a time when there isn't so much to do, and then your life will be over. Is that what you want for your life? Make sure that the so much to do contains, he didn't say this, I'm saying this, the essence of your life. What is important to your life? That you find your way to do that. If our practice does not have a depth of inquiry, on one hand, that's, that's okay, just as it is. On the other hand, perhaps something deeper that you yourself can't know from the perspective of not having that inquiry isn't being brought forth, isn't being made visible to ourselves. And from this perspective, it really doesn't matter what practice you do. What matters is giving life 
to the desire to find out who you are. We have formal terms for this, but I want to put it as plainly as I can. What matters is the integrity that you bring. You know that integrity when you're sitting and a thought of something desirable that has nothing to do with the formal zazen comes up and you're attracted to it and you have the choice to go there, to go down that road of fantasy, dreams, hopes, will come back to the bare bones of your being. We have that choice moment to moment. We have that choice in our life in a larger sense. So what matters is the integrity that we bring to our practice, that nitty-gritty sense of honesty that comes forth And we see we're using our thoughts to avoid seeing her to ourself. When we won't inquire right there. And we have to be careful because with avoidance comes self-judgment and condemnation. And then we go down that road, which does not help us in any way and is not truly honest is not truly honest to the Buddha that you fundamentally are, to the Buddha nature you fundamentally have. Wei Ning, the sixth ancestor from which all Zen lineages arise, says in the Platform Sutra, if you would free yourself from the sufferings of the six realms, we'll know that, sufferings, you must learn the direct way to become a Buddha, this way is no other than the realization of your own mind. Direct means zazen. It means zazen with the integrity and honesty that is fundamental, that is driven by an inquiry, by deep faith in yourself, and by deep determination. There's lots of other things that are important to each of us. And they are important. But sometimes those very important things need to be put aside just for the moment so that we ourselves can deeply, profoundly know who we are. Know not in the sense of intellect or define, but know in the sense of knowing every single being in this world, every single critter, every single tree, as yourself. It's interesting to me because what came up when I read that quote was in the Platform Sutra, Waning talks about repentance, the Gatha Atonement, Fusatsu. And in a way, Zazen is repentance. In a way, when we have a thought, a distraction, and we see that, and we let that go, 
That is acknowledging and repenting for our own disharmony that we ourselves create within us. So what we're doing here in Zazen, supported by all the ways that we do this, all the different ways of practice, is directly experiencing our mind. Weining says, now what is this mind? It's just another way of saying, who are you? It is the true nature of all sentient beings, that which existed before our parents were born, and hence before our own birth, and which presently exists unchangeable and eternal. So it is called one's face before one's parents were born. This mind is intrinsically pure, he says. When we are born, it is not newly created, and when we die, it does not perish. It has no distinction, no gender, nor has it any coloration of good or bad. Isn't that interesting? It cannot be compared with anything. So it's called Buddha nature. We know there actually is no thing called Buddha nature, right? If there was such a thing, none of this would apply. Yet countless thoughts arise from this self-nature as waves arise in the ocean or as images are reflected in a mirror. So Fayan says, Shakyamuni and Maitreya are servants of another. Tell me, who is that other? We know clearly, I'm me, you're you. See my picture? Look in the mirror? That's me. But are you at peace with this me? Truly at peace with the waves and tsunamis and boredom and glittering desires that will never end all of which we encounter within ourself, with the always reaching, grasping, trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together so that it'll stay together. All real living has pain and pleasure, hurts as well as fulfills. That's real living. Happiness comes when we have lived and have a respite from forgetting. Forgetting what? I ask you, what do you and I have to keep before us? Do our best not forget, to not forget. In order to not forget, we have to be actually willing to keep the central question before us. That central question may have a, an edge of desperation, may have an edge of insistence, of demand, or it could be just peaceful, open inquiry into this present moment of our existence. 
and yet it can always be there. And the good thing about practice is when we forget the question, we get infinite opportunities to come back home. In fact, I suspect forgetting the question is essential to remembering the question. So that's the good news. Who am I? Who is the other? What is the other? No one's coming. If you can see this other and distinguish clearly that it is like encountering your parent at the crossroads, you will not need to ask somebody whether or not you are right. If you see this other and distinguish them clearly. What about our servants, Shakyamuni and Maitreya? Are they the other? Are they themselves? Are they ourselves? What do we want from him or her or them? What do we want? Is it there on the altar? Where will you find what you want? Wining says, all my teachings Remember, all Zen lineages came from him, to the best of my knowledge. All my teachings issue from the conception of one's own nature and those who assert the existence of anything outside it betray their ignorance of its nature. Conception here does not mean intellect. So we have the precepts, we have samadhi, we have prashna moral conduct, the precepts, samadhi, zazen, prajna, wisdom. All these are forms of our own true nature. When there is nothing wrong, we have the precepts. When it is free from ignorance, we have wisdom. Wisdom, the moon reflecting in the water. Not two, not one. Your reflection in the mirror, your aching in the knees. When it is not disturbed, we have samadhi. That samadhi is an awareness that does not live in narrow or wide. You don't need to ask somebody else whether you're right. It's like encountering your parent at the crossroads. It's not like knowing this or that. It's like, is your head on top of your neck? Do you know your head is on top of your neck? Of course you do. No one has to tell you. That hurt. And my head is on top of my neck. Newman's verse. Do not draw another's bow. Do not ride another's horse. Don't discuss another's faults. Don't inquire into another's, affair, affair, another's affairs. This verse is pretty simple to understand. But it has its subtleties. And it's a bit challenging to see beneath the surface. 
it's cautioning us to see all the ways that we attach to what is outside ourselves. You know, you probably didn't know this, but I'm an expert on you. You know, I know all about you. I can tell you what's wrong with you. Maybe a little bit of what's right, but mainly what's wrong. Got it all figured out. I'm an expert. When we talk about what's outside ourselves, we're also talking about who we give authority to, to make ourselves smaller, to make ourselves restricted. I'm thinking about the workplace. And my last work was for a large corporation. And the corporation squeezed. That, that's what it did. It just squeezed. And there was no sense of morality or humanness to that. It was couched in those terms. I mean, the continuing education forced us uh, to look at um, how we can be aggressive to one another in our speech and so on and so forth. But there was no heart. And there was just money. That was the squeeze. It's a corporation you recognize, no. But there's a million more out there like them. And so when I worked for them, I gave them the authority to do that, knowingly. And so I had to balance my own sense of integrity and honesty knowing that as I did so, I risked being fired with my commitment to the job, my taking the job, my being pretty well paid in the job, and the responsibility to the people who are giving me that job. Because there are really no corporations. There's only people. There's only people. The Buddha's teaching that we study and realize can free us, but it can also create a tyranny of the teachings. We can do that, make up rules. It's this way, it's not that way. I remember earlier in my training, I was a, one of the attendants in the Jusario. Is my pronouncing it right? Yeah. <laughs> I was the one who was supposed to be organizing it. We came down and somebody, you know, was spaced very nicely and symmetrically and someone was a step away. And as we got there, I grabbed the person, I pulled them towards me. I didn't think anything of it. Just another aggressive Hogan move. And Jimon uh, came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you scared the shit out of me. What are you doing? Are you a Dharma policeman? We can do that. I, I'm doing it right. I'm making it right. And that's just an overt way that we can do that. So we can give away our fundamental responsibility to realize for ourselves what the Buddha taught and what the Buddha realized. The challenge here is for each one of us to navigate this practice as our life to appreciate these teachings in a way 
that holds us, that fosters a humility and an honesty that goes beyond how we might ordinarily think of ourselves, that allows for the possibility that there's much more to me than I can possibly think of. We can rely on each other. We must, on the Sangha, on the teachings, on our teachers, and most of all on ourself, a true self, to foster that sense of what is true within us. It's always up to us. We can ask and we can question endlessly, but know that there is no other. It is, it always has been, from the very beginning, just you. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about our ongoing programs and residency opportunities, visit ZMM.org.